0: Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hannan. I'm your host, Nabil Hannan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Ty Svano. Hi, Ty. How's it going, Nabil? Good. How are you? Doing well, sir. Ty is an information security leader with over 14 years of experience, mainly in financial technology organizations. Currently, Ty is the Chief Security and Trust Officer at SciSense. Ty's career has been focused on developing application and product security programs for Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, Lending Club, and Target. Key areas of knowledge include developing security champions, threat modeling, secure code training, static code analysis, component analysis, dynamic analysis, penetration testing, and red teaming. Ty basically does everything. Ty's security mentality has been concentrated on enabling engineering and product teams to securely move at the speed of the business to make it a competitive advantage. Ty graduated from Penn State University with a bachelor's in information science and technology and from Norwich University with a master's in information assurance. He currently holds a CISSP, CEH, CCSK, and CPT. So Ty, how did you get started with security? I think
1: it's a great question. Uh, there's the the formal response of when I started to get paid and then I could classify it as that. But um, if it, I think we have the time. So I'll, I'll take us a little bit further back.
0: I want the real story. Let's put it that way.
1: The real story. I think it's like most people. Um, security doesn't really start really when your career does, right? I think security is this mindset. And you can't always teach this thing of curiosity to human beings. I think we're curious by nature. But some of us are more curious around why things work. And that, that's that's really where mine started. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was really, you know, as a kid, taking electronics apart, understanding why does a telephone work? What are, is a circuit board doing? Um, and then ultimately trying to put it back together, not always being successful. And I think a lot of us are in the camp of builders and breakers. And I was definitely a breaker in the beginning of my career. I'm a builder now. Uh, I built security programs. I like to build the idea of building people into larger and better roles that have more influence, have more capability, more experience. But, you know, I look back when it comes to information security with my first computer. My dad bought me a Commodore 64 uh, probably when I was like five, six years old. And he didn't want to use a computer. He was in the Air Force. Uh, We were stationed in Japan, and that's where half of my family is. And he literally got the computer for the sentiment of, I think you'll figure out how to do something with this. And I'm really appreciative that he did that because mostly it was educational games, sitting there loading all of these things like Math Blaster and like construction games. Like imagine being a six-year-old kid and all of a sudden you went from not a lot of compute power, you know. There were Ataris, there were NESs, but at the same time, there was no ability to really create in those games. And I think that's that's what really started to occur is the, the builder mentality started to grow there while breaking as well, because you want to make things work for you. Like, how do I beat this game? How do I win? And I think that only grew as I grew older. Uh the natural opportunity became when I went to my undergrad. And started to figure out, what am I going to do with my life? It was like, hey, I like cars. Hey, I like the idea that everyone in my family has been to the military. Maybe I should go. I was not allowed to go. Um, And ultimately, I landed on this thing called Information Science and Technology at Penn State. I had a few different opportunities, some that were willing to give me scholarships uh, for subjects that I wasn't really into. And then at Penn State, they gave me no scholarships. (laughs) But the topic made the most sense for me. So I went without anything. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really thankful that my parents and my grandparents helped me get through, but I also worked, uh, the entire time through, except for my freshman year, I always had a job. Uh, my last year I was working full time and a big part of it is that growing mindset of like, how does this thing of security start to apply to the real world? And I think the degree didn't really teach you everything that you need to know, but it, it really emphasized the mindset. I worked on Cisco Pixes. I worked on. Uh, wireless hacking. We manually reversed web encryption, like we took packets and then we just analyzed them using math to get messages out. And that 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 was part of our curriculum. It was pretty cool. Uh, the NSA backed the school. Uh, we had some other government agencies that were supportive as well. I didn't want to go that route particularly. Um, and I went to a company called Protivity and I got right into security consulting. Uh, they unfortunately booked me for like a it socks gig right out of the gate. And that sucked. And I remember having the conversation with uh, the managing director, Scott Liberty at the time, be like, so Scott, how do I not ever get like an it socks project ever again? He's like, well, you know, we, we did hire you to be on the security team. Uh, but that was the the first assignment. Um, just look at kind of the curriculum, look at what a lot of people are doing and just go find a mentor within the team. And through that process, I found Ari Elias Backrack, who basically groomed me to be a penetration tester. Now, was he the nicest mentor I've ever had? Absolutely not. The, but he, he created the mindset of things are not granted. Things are not given. Things are earned. Uh, so even for the first conversation, he's like, before you come to the security lab, you need a security certificate. So I went and got the GSEC. And then I then went to Ari and I'm like, Ari, I did it. He's like, Cool well, you're not allowed in the lab yet. I'm like, but I thought that's what the criteria was. He's like, nope, Uh, now you got to physically break into the room through the key lock. And it was just like a five digit combo. And I just had to brute force it. And eventually I got in. And it's one of those things where that was his mantra and mentality. And it's played dividends for me now, having the opportunity to mentor people and getting into security and helping others too. But I think that, that was really my first push, real tactical job. Prior to that, you know, you're working help desk, you're working IT support, you're testing things like NetSend, you're using admin config logins, and you're asking the questions. But I think 16 years ago at that time, security wasn't the same. And when I had started doing it as a profession, it was really oriented around penetration testing and PCI assessments, vendor due diligence, and those were the key criteria. In that two years within Protivity, I probably did. Probably four years worth of work, working 70 to 100 hour weeks. And I, I think I'm one of those people in the mindset. And Nabil, knowing you for years now, you're, you're similar. I don't think it's years of experience. I think we, we rank this thing a little bit weird. I think the hours, the efforts, the projects, the, the experience is much different. And how I got into security only became magnified as I started my profession. And I really don't know if I, I became that thing or I already was it from a kid. So that's where I think getting into security, um, everyone has a different story, but I, I think I'm one of the very lucky few that actually had a curriculum, had a university degree, allowed me to do work while I was doing this thing, but also eventually graduate to get right into security. And so from day one of my actual experience on paper that I tell people, I was doing it. And uh, you know, 15 years later, here I am, uh, first time as a CISO. And I really took my time to get to this point because I really loved AppSec before it. You know, application security is a fun place. Right,
0: no, and if I can summarize some of the things that you said that really hits the, uh, the messaging correctly is, you know, you went through a phase where you really got to understand the basics and the fundamentals of security and just how things are built, like being able to decrypt uh, web encryption by hand using mathematics, for example. And then, of course, the natural curiosity of trying to figure out, well, how does something really work and being able to decompose it and, and break it down into its fundamental components to try and understand how that works from childhood. We are very similar from that perspective. I have very similar experiences with my first computer playing all of those games that you mentioned um, as part of my childhood uh, kind of brings back some very fond memories. And, you know, it's, it's something that I tell people is that you have to be clever to be in security. You can be very smart. And in fact, I can teach someone to be smart on a particular topic or a particular area. But I don't think I can teach you to be clever. That's something that's comes from within you. And it's also part of your genetics or part of your personality uh, as a person that you are. So that all makes a lot of sense. And I'm I'm very excited. You bring back some good memories of my background and how I got started with security as well. So from your perspective, is there any advice you would give someone who is considering a career in security and trying to decide whether it's right for them or not?
1: Yeah, uh, I will say luckily, I did a podcast with my friend Chris Fowlin. He does this podcast called Breaking into Cybersecurity. I did it like six months ago, and I really sat down and thought about this question a lot. And I think the difference from when our timelines are similar, like when we started in security, it was hard to find real information. Like I used to read Hacker Quarterly when I was, you know, doing my undergrad. And I thought it was the coolest thing because everything I had seen in media from the hackers movie to all these other things, it wasn't as always grounded. And some of the information available there wasn't as widely open as today. Mm -hmm. So I think right now there's just too much information. Like there's so much stuff and some of it's good. Some of it's bad. But I think the challenge is how do you get through all of that information when you say, cool, I just saw on living social or name another discount site, like a $59 package to how to be a hacker. Maybe that's a good way. I don't know. Like I've not gone through those things. What I know and what's worked for me is kind of what I'll explain, Uh, but it comes from more fundamentals. And I think it, it works for any career and it's not just purely security, but if you want to learn more about how others got into security, I think that podcast is awesome. For me, it's three things. One is a development action plan. So if you're thinking about it, commit to it, right? Like, and actually create a roadmap to get there. And a lot of people talk about a five-year roadmap. I think that's too much these days. And this year, um, I feel like even three or two years is too much now. For for me, it's really, how do I have an idea of the things I want to accomplish in an ideal world in, say, a year? If it's two years, cool. But now, high-level goals within that development plan of getting into security, let's break down what that means. Where am I at currently? Who am I as a person? What do I have to shore up and make sure actually happen? Do I have to change career paths? Is there someone in the organization that's going to groom me? You have to ask some of those things. And I think when you're asking yourself those questions, that leads to my second thing, which is mentors. So finding people that have done this before or at least one to two steps ahead of you that you see as far as inspiration... someone thing that maybe you emulate, but ultimately you're going to have to become your own person, they can at least give you guidance. They can give you targeted guidance because they can sit down and get to know you. Listening to these podcasts, listening to people like me will be maybe helpful or insightful, but it's not going to be custom tailored to you. And I think if you find those strong mentors, they'll help you work on that thing. And also they become your natural board of advisors for your life, your career. And sometimes they're spot, sometimes they're very meaningful and they become more than just a friend. Um, I've got some in my corner that literally will be there probably for the rest of my career and I hope after my career too because I like them as human beings and I think it's mutual. And some of them went to my wedding and, you know, some of them went to like birthdays. I've been invited to their family events and it's it's cool to see how that can actually lead to deep, meaningful relationships. And the third thing is the same thing that I said at the beginning. You got to commit. So if you want to get into security, it's not talking about it. It's not saying like, oh, I hack things or I do all these things or like, looks like anonymous is getting back in the game based on this past weekend. It's not about that, right? It's about choosing a narrative and a topic based on that development action plan and really going after it. And that is not easy. This career path is not meant for folks that want an easy, repeatable job. This is a job for Folks that always want to learn, always know that it's going to be scary, always know there's going to be some zero day that you didn't find. You're going to have to work through with a team to figure out how do you monkey patch? How do you get a web app firewall rule in? How do you protect an organization? And I think that level of commitment to you is only going to benefit your career growth because it's a hot market. It continues to be even with this downturn of the economy. People still can't place all these security roles while these jobs are disappearing. And I think That's something that speaks leaps and bounds to where we're going. And I think the future forecast, you commit to security, it will pay dividends in your career. And I've seen a lot of folks retrack from, say, engineering, help desk, uh, nail nail salon, like, you know, you name a thing where they went all in and they said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go do a boot camp. I'm going to get my first job. I'm going to become an analyst. I'm going to find a mentor. Their life changes as a result of it. And it's not just a job. So, you know, when I think about that, The real takeaway is make sure you're ready for this kind of commitment too, because it's not easy. I don't think security is ever gonna be easy. It's an adversarial role. Like if you find a great culture, it becomes very collaborative. But at the times when things are going wrong, when you're getting DDoSed from everywhere, when you have a botnet that's logging into every account, you better damn well be experienced enough to be calm, have your voice, and have a process that you can follow, and that's where a lot of the planning comes into play for preparedness. So by enacting something like a development action plan, you get more oriented around how we operate within the security field, which is we need to have a plan before we need a plan, and that that does take some mental thought and effort.
0: Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough the important role that my mentors have played in my career as well. I think ultimately, you know, you can be committed to something, and you can be. Um, spending your efforts and doing something. But having that right career mentor can really help you accelerate your growth and get you to places and bring you in front of opportunities that you probably didn't think that you could accomplish in the short time. So having that right mentor is very key. I'm definitely thankful for my mentors as I know you are too. So the thing there too is like, you
1: pay it for it now. You've had people put into mm-hmm. your career in the field. Like now you do that too, because that's, that's the type exactly. of world in the economy. It's not transactional. It's, it's human centric. Like you want to see betterment, like you got better mm-hmm. now give back. And I think that that's contagious and I, I want to see more of that. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to hear when people are like, I have a mentor. I understand the reality of it, but it's really scary to me when folks just rely on their, their team within their team. Like, oh, my manager is my mentor. It's like, keep in mind, no. even on my team, like, I will help you outside of your job, but I have a goal and an agenda. I have a plan. I have bias because I'm working for this company. I will look out for the best of you. But you need an unbiased view. You need someone that mm-hmm. is well outside of the spectrum that you can talk to. And I think that's the thing that that that's really important, too, to keep in mind.
0: The other thing that I have learned as I've grown in my career is that It's not really a mentor-mentee relationship because the more I mentor now and people come to me for advice, I realize that it's actually a mentor-mentor relationship. So when people come and ask me for advice or ask me questions or kind of challenge me with problems that they're facing, it allows me to also better myself and grow because now I understand some of the new challenges and the new mentality of the generations that are coming behind us and are the next up and comers and leaders in the space. What are the realities that they're facing? So I think it's important for people to also keep that in mind, that it's not really a mentor-mentee relationship. It really is a mentor-mentor relationship.
1: I think I'm always, I don't know how you feel, but I get weirded out when someone's like, hey, you're my mentor, right? I'm like, oh, I don't know about me. It's like when someone says like, hey, you're my boss. I'm like, eh, you know, we, we, we're colleagues. We've worked together. We're on an equal playing field. Yeah, maybe on a piece of paper you report into me. But when it comes to the mentor-mentee, I think there's so much value that like hearing other people's challenges. And even if you can tell a small narrative, like you heard their narrative, you're like, you know what? 10 years ago, this would not have been an issue. Or 10 years ago, wow, pen testing has not changed that much. So yes, it's the same thing. Like... It's, it's sometimes cool to hear it validated but i really love to hear how much progress has been made when they're explaining or un- unpacking a situation and the nuance of their culture the nuance of maybe their engineering team that allows for you to extrapolate something new and add it to your toolbox too so yeah i think it's mutually beneficial um, for those out there that that are not mentoring and have only been like accepting you know information again give back provide and it's it's mutually beneficial for sure. Mm -hmm. Excellent point.
0: It's definitely helped me grow as well. And yes, you're right. I get very awkward when someone says, hey, you're my mentor. I want them to, I want to tell them, look, I don't need a formal title, but I would love for you to come to me if you have challenges that you're facing so we can brainstorm. I'm happy to be a sounding board and we can work on this together. So, you know, speaking of mentorship, I actually know that being challenged has been some of the key you know, on key roles that I've played and I found to be very exciting and I enjoyed where, where I was challenged and I had good mentors guiding me through those opportunities. What is one of your favorite cybersecurity roles or a favorite time in your career that you recollect and more particularly, why was it one of your favorite experiences?
1: Yeah, I, I, I liked this question as I was thinking about it and it's actually really tough for me um, because... I think we all go with the law of recency. However, I'm going to go with the job before the current one. While while I like my current job, um, it's the job that led me to this job. And it was really fascinating. After spending, you know, eight, 10 years in fintech uh, between many places, and I will always have a special place in my heart for Capital One with the relationships I built there. I spent five and a half years of my life there. I grew up as an IC, an individual contributor, all the way to a People manager, director, like there was a lot of evolution in my life through that process inside and outside of that career.
0: You evolved into a grown up as part of that process.
1: I I honestly, yes. I think I became a grown up in my late 20s and I finally, like in my early 30s, realized that. But my favorite job uh, was when I joined this startup called Periscope Data. Um, For me, I had left my, I'm not going to say my last fintech job, but my last publicly traded organization uh, at Lending Club. And I joined this startup. That was a series B so early thousand customers, a lot of customers, which was really great. But at the same time, like they really didn't have a security function. They had someone that was in there for a little bit of time. It didn't work out because they came from uh, a big bank. And then they thought in a startup, they could just ask people to do a lot of work. And that's it's a different mantra and mentality. So I took time to transition to get ready for this role. But it wasn't specific to this company. I just knew for data analytics and security. It's a sweet spot. I know this is going to be a great market. And it has been. It's been a lot of lessons learned. But when I joined that company, I had so many things. And it wasn't just security. It was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do AppSec. Cool. I'm going to do privacy. I'm going to get involved with legal. I'm going to launch the first part of our patents program six years after this company started. And I'm like, guys, if we're not protecting our IP and we didn't do it at the beginning, we lost the chance on our secret sauce. And as someone that's been involved on the back end of this later on for a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. we need to protect our secrets now. And it was it was really insightful and valuable to be able to lean in to other areas outside of security while still hitting home runs in the security team, which was me. But it was a smaller scale. You know, you have 140 people, you know, and you get to like 160, 180. And then all of a sudden, this magical moment happens that was on my development action plan, which was join a startup, uh, eventually become a CISO. Take that thing wherever you're working and get it to an acquisition or an IPO. We got acquired uh, a year and some change after I joined. So I checked that box and that journey to get to that point, And then the next six months of that was very interesting of working through how do we merge two cultures. And then I've gone through this thing because of that starting point. And it is still my favorite anchor when I think about my career of what's really possible and how much value I can instill, impact, provide and build. I can build stuff. And, you know, I look forward to that day once again. But right now I'm on the secondary journey where I still want to fulfill that goal acquired or go through the IPO process. And IPO for me would be very interesting just because of the experience to get to that point of what does it take to get it from that series B where I started to now currently we're a series E to get to the place that I'm used to going to and those publicly traded controls that are required to be at that level uh the segregation of duty requirements when it comes to like finance controls where security doesn't Im- like get involved it's all encompassing and I'm, I'm very excited by the challenge and the opportunities ahead of us so it's i'm not sure if my current role is my favorite one yet because i'm still <laughs> i'm still learning and growing because I've, I've closed that partial old chapter from the legal entity standpoint I can say factually, that was my favorite early stage company where you can do so much, build, and you're surrounded by people that are always willing to help because your equity, your time, your energy, the people you're around every day matters. And when everyone has that mindset, you can accomplish so much. And when you get those hits of serotonin from crushing goals every day, and then you reflect after a week of like, oh my goodness, we did so much together. um, That's the thing that I really like is doing more than what I can do by myself. Uh, And I have found a place where they kind of appreciate the value of it too, from the other end of security. Mm
0: -hmm. And then, you know, it's also a very interesting point around the risk and reward system. You know, ultimately when you're taking on at an early stage company and taking on a role of where you're playing multiple roles and wearing different hats throughout the day, you are taking a risk because you don't know how the thing is going to evolve and um, how things are going to unfold in the long term. But that being said, the reward of doing that the correct way and making the right decisions and getting the right results is so much larger. So, you know, a lot of people um, who want to get into security they tell me that they're not comfortable with taking too much risk or they're worried that, you know, something they're going to do is too risky or it's not well defined. What I tell them is, well, really think about it and figure out whether this is the right career for you or not, because to be in security, you have to be open to taking risks. You have to get out of your comfort zone. And in fact, yep. you will reflect on it in the long run. And that'll probably be one of your more favorite roles that you played because you took a leap of faith, you took a risk and the reward kind of paid off over, over time.
1: Well, not yet. The reward, The, the financial reward <laughs> we're still working on. But again, it's I think it's a super valid point. Um, you know, if, if you go early stage, uh, it's, you're, you're probably going to take a pay cut if you're used to like publicly traded Fortune 500 or 100 companies. Mm-hmm. But to get into security, um, I actually had this conversation with someone, you know, I, I check in with, it's mentoring, but at the same time, like I check in with them because I'm really impressed with what they're doing at the company. Uh, and I've known them since the early Periscope days, uh, but they're rising through the ranks now. But one of the things I mentioned was, you know, I moved for just about every role in my career until I made it to San Francisco, Uh, Philadelphia. I lived there. I had two separate roles. One was in that consulting job I mentioned early. And then the next one was in Wilmington, Delaware, which I just drove a lot to. And I, I did not like that commute. I'll just say that I don't like commuting in general, but 33 miles when it could be 30 minutes or you know three and a half hours it's pretty rough to calculate mm-hmm. that in your
0: schedule i've done that drive i'm not very fam- i'm not a fan of that drive
1: i'm not a, i'm not fond of that one um uh, but you have to be willing to understand what is your personal risk tolerance because when you're trying to instill what is the business risk tolerance for the company that's a hard conversation because it changes your personal risk tolerance you have to understand like what do you want out of this career and for me i, I think similar to you like I was willing to gamble every time, and there are going to be times it pays off. And then there are going to be times you're like, I made a mistake joining the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, the other thing I'll say is if you're not open to risk, um, don't be a CISO, right? Because it it can be scary knowing that every type of risk, everything in the risk <laughs> register that you're managing, uh, but also like this C level title is the shortest lived role in every organization and i wish it wasn't the case Mm -hmm. i hope to see more people like a joel fulton that rides the whole wave of splunk and then does cool stuff afterwards but there's not a lot of people that have that crazy success story i think brad arkin's another good good one from adobe um most i'm gonna say of us it's less than 17 24 months i think it's growing but at the same time like we are on the chopping block and to know like even in this downturn there was a moment there where we had to do some layoffs I put myself in the mix I didn't know until the like the morning of if we were gonna like say yay or nay but it's it's kind of a unique feeling and when you explain that to other folks it is um it's a scary feeling to them even hearing the story like as you explain it there are going to be times in your career where you're not going to be sure if tomorrow you will have a job or if you'll be having the conversation uh with HR or whoever and it's like all right, we're going to talk about your transition plan because of this incident that happened and someone has to roll and the board wants it or this happened and the street needs it and we need the martyr for this process. And I think unfortunately, CISOs typically feel that burden quite often and and that's where that risk tolerance and what it takes to be in this field, you have to know what you're getting into. And again, I think if you find the right mentors, they'll educate you on that process before you make that like leap of faith.
0: Absolutely. So, Ty, you know, in our last conversation, you mentioned that you have now started getting into um, investing in early stage startups. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about what you're doing in that space and, and how that's going?
1: Yeah, it's just one of these really cool things. Um, I had seen a few CISOs in the past that had done some incubation uh, before, mostly just from a financial standpoint. Um I, I kind of, I favored the advisor path a little bit more. So I've been involved with a few um, and I, I think I'll talk about that one a little bit after, uh, but just how I got into investing. One, I mean, you have to be qualified as an angel investor. And I started on uh, certain platforms that are out there. You can name a bunch. I'm not going to name them because not endorsing any, but you can sign up and you can actually invest early stage for companies. And it's just a different avenue of financial investment. My time in fintech has told me I always want to be financially free, independent. I want to get to the point where my money is working for me and I don't have to work for my money. Um, I'm still on that journey. I'm never going to be off of it, but I do want to get to a point where in my mind I'm retired, but I'm still working my ass off because my money is yielding more than what I can do just manually doing work. I'm not even close to there, but I have read enough I have studied enough to know that it does take risk. And these are risks for me where some of these investments will not pay off ever, right? Like some mm-hmm. of these investments may pay off 300% and it's five years later. Is it worth it compared to, should I just have invested in Apple stock? I can't answer <laughs> answer that for everyone. But for me, it started there uh, with more of those online platforms and then eventually becoming an advisor and then eventually, Uh, getting a call from a friend, Oren Younger, in the Bay Area uh, where I was just at a CISO meetup and we were talking and uh, he kind of pinged me right afterwards and said, hey, man, um, I just like to connect. And that's all it was. And and my initial reaction is always like, what is the transaction we are about to engage in? And there was none. It was literally we got together. We had coffee. uh, We shot the shit. And through that, um, at the end, he's like, hey, I'm also working on this thing. I think you're probably qualified for it, but uh, we're starting this, and this was last year, we're starting this Silicon Valley CISO investors group, SVCI. Um, it's through GGV. That's kind of the backing of it, who Oren works for as an analyst. And it just kind of made a lot of sense of, well, I'm like, I already do this, I already do that. I have a, a lot of domain knowledge and security. So now why don't mm-hmm. I put my my money where my mouth is when it comes to experience? And I will have much more confidence in the investments I make Uh, I haven't looked back since Um, I've invested in one. Uh, I don't know if we need to get into those details, but I think it's, it's pretty cool to see like where the startups are, who the founders are, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And then what, what is it that they're trying to solve for in the security field? And you get a lot of these when you work in this environment and it's usually people that want to sell to you, but now it's the flip side. I know I'm investing in things that are going to help make an
0: impact. Are there any specific things or factors you're looking for when you're deciding on how to invest in a company or a product?
1: Uh, For me, it's it's no different. You know how I explained that thing about my first mentor, like my first real security mentor, like he put gates in front of me and challenges. Mm -hmm. I do the same thing all the time. So this is one of my tactics. Like it's not even a secret, but I've heard time and time again, people that want to solve something, want to get into security, like name another challenge. Will you take feedback? Will you action that feedback? will you not be upset when someone says something counter to the point that you're making and i think when i when i look at that it's are is the founding team going to be the team that's going to survive together is something minuscule going to break them up and i've i've learned that lesson over some advising too that founding team is critical that is beyond a relationship than most of us will ever even understand it's like a business marriage Because they have to be in it for the long haul. They have to live and breathe Mm -hmm. that as an identity. And I don't think all of us, I don't think I'm the type of person uh, that would want to found a company because that's that's everything, right? Like you can have balance, but at the end of the day, like you're a hundred percent in on that idea and the business and your founding partner or co-founders if you have multiple. But typically when you have that conversation, I like to start with some like critical feedback see how they either action it or if they get completely flabbergasted that I say something counter to their point and they don't agree and they never want to talk again, I'm okay with that because that is going to speak leaps and bounds to them as an individual too. Like as your personal development goes in your career, your early thing that you learn is how do you take feedback? I look at it the same way.
0: No, that's very true. Very true. And what I've learned as part of this career path and just my experience is Ultimately, these are the people who are going to be the leaders in the organization long term, and they're going to attract the right talent yep. to want to come and work for them. And, you know, I've been reading a lot about different sort of leadership methodologies and things that make someone an effective leader and what are the real traits that you want to go after. And it's it's clear that you have to work and want to work for A leader who is the right leader for you. And most people, in fact, leave their jobs rarely because of the company, but more because they're not happy with the person that they work for and their manager. And in trying times like now, when, you know, with adversity comes opportunity, if you work for someone that's a good leader, they will actually enable you to grow, especially at times of adversity. Yep. Whereas if you work for someone who's not a good leader and not a good boss, they will usually shut you down and kind of tell you what to do and micromanage you and not let you be as effective as you could be. So. Finding someone to work for that's the right leader, I think, is also equally important along with the mentorship piece as well Mm -hmm. and ties in perfectly here, too, because to find a company, the founding team is are going to be the leaders that will attract the rest of the business growth and attract the right people to make them successful long term. In that, like
1: depending on the stage you join, you're going to know what the culture is, too, because they they set the tone, Mm -hmm. how they build it how they run the operational aspect of the team, how they onboard people to how they respect each other as engineers, how they respect each other when it comes to the sales cycle. That that comes from the founding team. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you can always tell like is it a house of cards? You know, like is <laughs> is this a magic show or is this real? And I think when you look at the world today, you're finding more real teams that really stand the test of time. The hard part is, will the technology continue to meet the demand? What you got there?
0: So I read this book. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I don't know if you've read this. It's by Patrick uh, Lencioni. And what it talks about is, you know, we often tend to misconstrue what our first team is. So the first team is not the team that reports to you or your direct report your first team is actually the group of your peers. In this case, your first team would be the group of the founders that are playing different roles and functions. And if they don't trust each other and function together to support each other in their success, the rest of the team that works under them is gonna fail. So it's a really cool book, Um, read that a few years ago called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Um, Highly recommend you take a look if you're you're curious and want to see it. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. But but that talks about the importance of having the the first team be functional and and build trust and you know support amongst each other to actually build a successful business or a successful organization.
1: Yeah. Uh, if I can share one more story about Periscope and also of course. Uh, that thing behind me is one of the artifacts from a long time ago. It was uh, one of the values of the organization. I got to keep a piece of art that was just going to go into storage forever. And uh, it was cool to get gifted it. But also when I, when I interviewed with Periscope Data, uh, I met with the founder, uh, Tom O'Neill. Uh, him and Harry Glazer made the decision a long time ago that they were going to do something together. And eventually they did this thing together. Uh, but I asked a point blank question and it was my last part of my interview process. How do we make sure engineering and the business don't get too far separated? Because I've, unfortunately, and this is just me bringing my suitcase of experience and you know, maybe call it baggage. Uh, but a big part of it is sometimes IT and how the products are built, how the services are developed are not always in lockstep with the business of what we're selling and how we're selling it. Right. Sometimes we we sell a bill of goods that our butts can't cash. And I think that's the thing. When I asked him that question, he actually just reverted back to a story around like how his relationship with the founder meant more than just the business. So integrity beyond just what they're doing for their day to day actually means a lot more. And I was I was sold at that point when he told me that narrative of they met in college and they knew they were friends and they knew they were going to work together and now it just translates but the difference is I I've seen it every day even after we got acquired they're still the closest of friends and lifelong companions, and even if we have this like booming exit at some point, mm-hmm. I suspect these guys will work together again on something like let it be an MPO or another technology product. But of course. that is a very unique relationship. And again, the tone, the culture that they created, I lived and breathed it for that like year and a half that we were doing it together.
0: And that's what really you know builds the the trust amongst the team as well as when they see that level of trust amongst their management or the leaders in the organization, because as soon as the trust is lost between you and your boss, that's over. It's game over. They're not, the, the employee's not going to stay long-term or the boss is going to fire them anyways. So uh, that's, uh, that's what happens. Yep. Like, hey, Nabil, can we just uh, accept that risk? <laughs> how about we just, how about, how about that risk in that security incident never happened? And you're like, we'll just, we'll just sign off on it. Let's just sign off on it and accept risk. Yeah. Ooh, it's like you can't <laughs> do it. <laughs> so Ty, um, you know, I know you have a passion for martial arts yeah. and I've actually had the pleasure of looking at some of your martial arts photography. Cool. Uh can you share with us of uh, you know how you got into martial arts, what it means to you, and why did you go into martial arts photography?
1: Yeah, I I used to not talk about this. I think Carolyn's the first person that dragged it out of me. Um I used to separate work in life very aggressively, uh, especially when I was in fintech, um, just because as a, you know, a leader, a director, having the perception of anything external uh, related to what most people perceive as violence, especially with the rise of MMA, it, it was always tricky to navigate. Now I'm very open about this, but that's also my confidence in who I am as a human being uh, and sharing this. And and I, I think for me, uh, the passion started when I was a kid. Honestly, I grew up in Japan. I'm half Japanese. Like you, you can't help but not be enamored by the mysticism of Bushido and samurai and the old guard of what the history of Japan is. And that that's something that I, I can't fully explain. But media too. Like I, I I still reflect back on like the first samurai show. I can't really watch it now today because it's, it's a little cheesy. But they have newer versions of it. It was the <laughs> show called Toyama no Kinsan, and there was this one scene, I'm gonna share an embarrassing story, uh, where he had this badass arm tattoo and I didn't even realize, like, as an adult, why I got certain things done to my own body, but he would do this thing where he would take his arm, throw it outside of his clothing and then expose his, like, tattoo and be like, do you know who you're messing with? And they would recognize the tattoo and be like, oh my god, it's Toyama no Kinsan. And then they'd be like, "We, we done fucked up. You know, like, we messed up. And (laughs) that that was always funny to me because i used to ruin a lot of t-shirts as a kid growing up by emulating
0: this behavior trying to reenact that that scene in the movie
1: 100 percent and then there was just so many other pieces of media like it but that for me translated into real martial arts um so i've been doing martial arts now for 23 22 years 23 years i don't even know i started at like 13 14 um And I haven't looked back. The difference from when I was a teenager was access to the right instructors, uh, the right sort of systems, uh, the right mentality of instructor. When I started, it was very old school, very rigid. uh, But as I've grown along with my experience, uh, I'm more in the new age mindset of martial arts is not a single system. Uh, That's why I really like Bruce Lee's sayings, his studies, his approach um, and I've applied a lot of his mentality to the rest of the world. Now, Jeet Kune do itself, I've studied. It's not my favorite thing. I really love Muay Thai and kickboxing. I like kickboxing more for the entertainment value. Muay Thai is a little more technical. Uh, grappling is fun. Mm-hmm. I don't do it for certain reasons because my body never responded great to it in a lot of injuries. But I've found this sweet spot where as I was learning and growing, competing, fighting, and eventually similar path, I started coaching. And the value to me is like, I I could do a lot of these things, but the sacrifice of damage was always a risk for me, uh, just because I would have to show up to a meeting, or I took a fight, and then I had to do pen testing 12 hours later, and my leg was all (laughs) jacked up. And I'm like, why did I do this? But a big part of it led to this journey. And um, just over the past... I don't know, decade. Uh, I've I've been a professional coach too, which has been really exciting for me. I'm not in that phase anymore. I just coach a little bit, but not for professional fighters. It's a different commitment. Um, And that to me is kind of the mentor-mentee relationship, but it's mentor-mentor, as you said. I kind of like that a little bit more now that I'm thinking about it. We've shared in a journey of taking, you know, some folks that were down and out, abused by the boxing system, and then all of a sudden they're rising from an unranked unnamed fighter to you know number seven in the world and we were just working towards those goals now after that it's like fighting's cool but let's talk about your life what's the business model after this because fighting only lasts so long and people have very short memories when it comes to fighting too so that turned into cool you're going to start a business let me see how i can help the business is going cool Now you're doing other things. Now you're keeping secrets from me on side businesses because you have a better mentality and mantra about how you're always moving forward because you've taken everything we've done together, the mentality of the training, the commitment, the drive to now apply it to life. And I remember I had a rough conversation with my old fighters and he's like, I didn't want to explain like why this situation wasn't going well because I had one failed business. He's like, I got one other thing going, but I never wanted to talk about it loudly because I don't know how it's going to go yet he's like now it's going well i'm open to talking about it and he's like as part of what we were doing it's like training like you don't go shouting at how hard you're training you just do it the results are in the results right like the outcome is the fight the outcome is what has yeah. happened and what you've put into it and for me it's that full circle and i never thought you know starting aikido at a young age it would have led to this point where like i'm 37 now And I've lived another whole life that's allowed me to travel around the world, to go to shows, to coaching corners, to see these highlight reel knockouts and see some of my fighters getting knocked out, but also the other side. And it's allowed me to have relationships, friendships. Uh, I met my wife through martial arts. I met my best friend through martial arts. I stay in contact with friends that are doing really cool things. Let it be the police force. Let it be music and producing and all the way to just like graphic media design. You meet so many different segments and it's been really favorable. So I'm finding more comfort in kind of combining the two now, which has been really great for me.
0: That's great. And anything in terms of your inspiration to get into photography of martial arts? I, you do great work. I looked at all of your uh, posts earlier. Um, How did you get inspired to do photography?
1: Uh, I've always enjoyed photography. That was part of the electronics and then capturing stories and narratives. I, I was really into landscape stuff in the beginning, and that was just more for my own personal enjoyment. And then eventually, as I was coaching, I realized, just like many other people realized, fighting is not just fighting. It's entertainment. And if you don't have the media to back it up, if you don't recognize certain fighters, even if they're not the best, if they can speak well, if they have a great media presence, you get more opportunity. And through that process, that's that's kind of how it it started going. Like I would have the commission at a a fight and they would yell at me and be like, coach, you either need to coach or put down your camera. And I'm like, can I just do both? They're like, no, you cannot. I'm like, "Okay, well, like I'm going to coach then." Uh, But at the same time, like I would get on the ring apron. I would be taking shots as the fighters entering. I would be taking shots as we're wrapping up the fight during the event. They usually shut me down depending on which state. But it was cool, especially now when we reflect back. Like I just looked at a fight uh from five years ago and I was able to record in the corner the whole time. And it was just like it was in a state that's not as rigorous. I'll just say that. And it's cool to like reach out to one of my coach friends um, that helped me a lot with life too on like how to do lifting correctly to save my back. And my back is super healthy because of him. I trained him for many fights. And we're friends for life. But just to be like, hey, man, check out this piece of content that we did five years ago. How crazy was it that all of that stuff came together in that fight? And then we had that sort of track that just kept going there. And photography for me has been about capturing stories and moments because fighting and fitness and health are fleeting. And in that, when you have that one defining shot one photo of a moment where two people are connecting. Like literally I have one shot where my boy, Brandon Mickens is putting Vaseline on this fighter. Francois Mbang, my other boy, like literally on his brow. And it's this very special moment where like nine weeks of training has led to these next nine minutes of fighting. Mm-hmm. It's time to go, you know? And and, and I think yeah. those things really resonate with me. And also I gift them too. like, I, I I take it, I produce it. And then I like for Christmas, I'm like, this is yours. You know, this is your, your moment in life. And I don't know, it's it's kind of unique. I never thought I would be down this path. But I got inspired by some of the guys that were on the glory kickboxing circuit, and a few other cards and promotions. And as I saw their work, and as I interacted with them, I'm like, I think I can do this too. And I just did it as a side thing. And it's really to help fighters that are not going to be making a lot of money through this process to start their journey, or at least emphasize and capture their journey, because that's one of my regrets. I trained during a time, and I did a bunch of stuff. I don't have a lot of media for it, and my memories are here. Uh, My wife has them, uh, but it's not digitally captured, you know, and that kind of sucks. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's um, that's very true. Well, Ty, thank you so much. This was fun, informative, and I'm sure our audience is going to really enjoy this. It was great catching up after so long, and I hope to see you in person sometime soon.
1: Yeah, I hope to see you soon as well, Nabil.
0: Thanks. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.